guys. Good to see you today. Um, welcome to Fellowship of Faith. You know, today is, is something pretty cool. It is week two of something we just started last week called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. Live texting continues today. I'll get to that in a moment. Guys, I showed you a slide last week. I want to show it to you again today, and I want you to just take about 30 seconds this morning to read it because I think it is that important. One of our core values here at Fellowship of Faith, here it is. People need to see that Christians are real people. We don't have it all together. We have questions. We have doubts. Non-Christians do not have it all together. We have questions. We have doubts. Whether you're a Christian here today or a non-Christian, welcome. It is so good having you here. And I know that you come here today with questions, questions about God, questions about life, questions about theology and Christianity and the Bible. Maybe it's things you were taught as a kid. Maybe it's things that you've heard and you're like, that doesn't sound right. Maybe it's things that you've swallowed hook, line, and sinker, but now you're starting to have questions about. Maybe you're here and you've been like a believer most of your life and you have this question and you're like, I just wish I could ask it where like no one is going to laugh at me, right? Maybe you're here today and you're brand new to this and you're like, I have so many questions about what Christians even believe or who Jesus even is, but can I ask them? The answer is yes, because here's how today works. What I'm going to invite you to do in just a moment is take out one of these. To take out your phone, and I'll show you the number in a minute and text in any question you have. I don't care how off the wall, ridiculous sounding, simplistic or complex, heretical, crazy, or anything else it might be, Every question is fair game, and I'm going to do my best right here to answer them on the spot. I'm going to get them anonymously, and I'm going to do my best to give you as straightforward and honest an answer as I can to the questions you ask. Now, here's the thing. I know a lot of you here probably have questions and maybe you're afraid to ask. Maybe you're embarrassed. We all kind of have this fear that someone is going to do this to us when we ask a question in church, okay? Watch this clip. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. I am never going to say that to you for the questions you have. And my prayer is that you don't say that to me after this day is done. Guys, any question you have, text them in. 815-314-0363. You can text them in at any time throughout today. And here's the thing. I told you today is week two, right? Last week, guys... 52 questions that I didn't have time to get to at 10.30 service alone last Sunday. Oh my gosh, can I just say, that rocks. Give it up, all right? Give it up. 
What I'm going to start with today is touching on those questions. I'm going to get through a volume of them and let the, the text in start to back up here and then take some pool of there. And let's just see what kind of headway we can make this, this morning. And remember, as I'm looking at questions here, if questions come to your mind, text them on in. And uh, let's see where this takes us. So question number one that I didn't have a chance to get to last week. Paul writes a letter to some friends at a church in Turkey. And it becomes the divinely inspired, flawless word of God. Was Paul aware? And are we certain? How do I explain divine inspiration to others? That is a great question. Let's move on. <laughs> you know, you ever have that moment where you write an email to someone and then you, sit, you hit send and you're like, oh my gosh, I wish I could get it back? Imagine what Paul must feel like with his letters being studied and scrutinized 2,000 years later. It's fascinating that from the days of the earliest church, there was lots of Christians writing about lots of things. It's not like what we have in the Bible is the sum total of Christian writing. And yet from day one, people saw what Paul was writing and they said there's something different here. There's something kind of keyed in with what we know about Jesus, with what the apostles have taught us, and with what God's Spirit is doing in our midst. The reality is for the early church, when they read those Pauline letters, they said, you've got to read this. No, you've got to read this too. This explains everything. Now, let's not forget what Peter says in one of his letters. Yeah, I know some things Paul writes about are hard to understand. But at some level, there was just this sense in the early church that uh, something here was pulsing with the Spirit of God. Now, some clarifications. Paul's letters are not flawless. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to know what you mean by flawless. Because to be inspired does not mean to be flawless. You can look at the Gospel of Mark, you can look at the Gospel of John, you can look at Pauline letters, and you will see spelling mistakes, you will see grammatical errors, you will see rhetoric laid out where he picks up on a train of thought, forgets where he was, and jumps somewhere else and never comes back. English teachers, or Greek teachers, if you will, might not have given Paul an A. That isn't what inspiration means. What inspiration means is that God laces these words that God somehow is in these words, and that fundamentally what is being written is true. There's all these terms out there like inspiration and infallibility and inerrancy, and sometimes I think they carry more baggage than they're worth. At a fundamental level, there was this, this universal acceptance that what this is is true. And how do you explain that to others Simply by this, there, there are certain ways that God chooses to work. God speaks through people. He did it through Moses. He did it through the prophets. He did it through the apostles. He did it through Paul. And say, so don't take my word for it. Read it. Read it and see what it has to say. See how it interfaces with your soul. I'm here to help. But see what happens in the midst and see if God speaks to your soul too. If you are willing to extend faith, that it just might be true. 
fantastic question. Number two, last week, the creed says that Jesus descended into hell. This is the Apostles' Creed, um, mind you. What did he there to do? First of all, when I put these slides up here, I take them word for word, letter for letter from the text. So sometimes they won't seem coherent. Text more clearly, all right? Um, But this is what the text said. The Apostles' Creed says this. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. Number one, the creeds are not, to borrow phraseology earlier, infallible or flawless words of God. They are not, quote, inspired in the same sense. Remember that. Number two, the phrase he descended into hell does not come into the Apostles' Creed until the fourth century. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it's interesting. Third, remember that the Apostles' Creed was not written in English. It was written in Greek. And what it actually says is that he descended into Hades. You remember Greek myth? All right, so what's that about? Different traditions have interpreted different ways. If you were to go to a Presbyterian church and they say the creed, they would translate the phrase Hades in Greek like this. Jesus descended to the grave. They wouldn't translate it hell at all. They would translate it grave. Jesus descended to the grave. He died. He went to Sheol. He went to the place of the dead. However, other traditions have said, no, 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 I think there's a different nuance here. And what they've done is they've picked up on ideas that come out of like 1 Peter chapter 3 and other places where it talks about Jesus after his crucifixion going to, check this out, totally weird, preach to spirits who are in prison from long ago. What the heck? Because that clarifies everything. So fundamentally, I don't know. But let me venture some guesses. He didn't go there to suffer. He didn't go there to suffer because his work and his victory over Satan was done on the cross. It wasn't like the cross was incomplete. So many have theorized that what Jesus did when he went to hell is similar to what Allied forces did when they went to Berlin in 1944. They planted their flag and they said, it's our turf now. Jesus went to hell to proclaim victory. Satan, you lost. Satan, I'm the king. Satan, this is my turf now. You can't do nothing without getting through me. Whatever the proper interpretation of the Apostles' Creed might be is up for grabs, but I know those two things, regardless, are true. Question three. Why are there so many different religions besides Christianity And why does Christianity trump the others? Why are there so many different religions? Because there are so many different people with so many different experiences, perspectives, issues, backgrounds, many of whom have a sense that there is something more than just the material I see in this world. And you know this, for centuries people have been trying to figure that out. Smart, good people wrestling with what the truths of this universe might be, coming to different perspectives. One thing semi-unique about Christianity is the idea that the teachings are not based in philosophical musing alone, though that's certainly there. 
but that it's also based in something more. Revelation. That God actually has appeared and showed himself and, and revealed himself in ways to go, no, 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 I know you're searching. I know you're thinking. I know you're wrestling. Let me show you. This is fundamentally what Christianity is about. It's to say that God actually became a human being. Christians believe that Jesus is not just some prophet, that Jesus is not just some holy man, but that Jesus is God in the flesh of a human being, going, do you want to know who God is? Look at, to me. Look, look at me. Listen to me. Watch me. Ask me. Talk to me. The ultimate revelation of who God happens to be. And so why does Christianity trump all others? Well, because if you're trying to guess who someone is, and then they show up and go, this is who I am, probably good to believe it, right? And so if you believe that God actually is Jesus Christ, to take his teaching and his way and his ideas about what is true in this world is ultimately going to trump contradictory viewpoints. Great question. Next one. Different denominations. They have different beliefs and rules. Since we can't know for sure who is right, is there a core set of beliefs we should follow? And how do you know your the right religion. Well, I'm not the right religion, neither are you, but I think how do you know yours is the right religion is what is intended here. And it really streamlines on the one before. There's two equal and opposite errors I think people make when they come to the Bible. Error one, they want everything to be black and white. Everything to be easily delineated. It's just simple if you would just read it, matter of fact. Some things in the Bible are black and white. Some things are gray that can allow for any number of possible interpretive ideas. There are other people that make the opposite error of going, ah, it's all interpretation. How do you know anything? Well, at some level, yeah, all of us are interpreting it, but does that mean your interpretation is good? All interpretations are not equal. When you interpret, are you interpreting logically, wisely, out of right motive, in context of the greater whole? And there's no easy way around this one. You can't just have someone come to you and say, man, Lutheran, that's right. Catholic, that's right. I mean, you can. Does that do it for you? You've just got to do the work. You've got to read and research and matrix against the Bible and continue to let God take you deeper into properly interpreting his word. Now, are there a core set of beliefs we should follow within all these different stripes and varieties? Absolutely yes, because fundamentally, whatever differences might exist between Catholic and Orthodox and Lutheran and Presbyterian and Anabaptist and Charismatic and every other stripe and variety that are out there, these similarities outweigh them like 99 to 1. Most Christians of every stripe and variety agree on a core set of doctrines, and I'll tell you what they are. Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed, Nicene Creed. See, denominationalism is not a new thing. Early church had it too, and they asked the same question. How do we know? Do they have it right, or do they have it right, or do they have it right? And they said, this is our core and if you don't know those, hop on the FOF website and check them out. You can read them for yourself and uh, love to coach you through. If Jesus was Jewish, 
Should, did I, Jesus Jewish, it's hard to say. If Jesus was Jewish, shouldn't we practice Judaism? Depends what you mean by Judaism. I would argue Christianity is Judaism. We are practicing what Judaism was always supposed to be because Jesus was not the pioneer of a new religion. He was the fulfillment of an ancient one. Jesus came and said, I tell you, I haven't come to abolish that. Not one stroke of the pen will disappear. I have come to fulfill it. And that's why Jesus was a Jew. His early followers were Jew. The original movement was Jew. Now, Judaism today is something different than what Judaism was in the first century. In fact, there's as many denominations of Judaism today as there are of Christianity. And their belief system tends to diverge much more wildly. So the simple question you have to ask is this. What does it mean to be a Jew? And how do I interpret what Jew means? Next question. So for people who are Jewish in faith today, is there a place for them in heaven? Why do Christians so strongly defend Israel, not Palestine? Is there some elevation of Jewish people even though they haven't accepted Christ? There are Jews today who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. There are many Jews that will be in heaven as a result. There are many Jews today that reject Jesus as the Messiah. They won't be. This is what much of the gospel in the New Testament is about. The irony of God coming to his very people through whom he was going to deliver his message and so many of them rejecting. Your status does not get you in with God. I don't care what your bloodline is. I don't care what your tradition is. I do not care what membership role you belong to. The delineation between heaven and hell, God and distance from him, is your relation to his son, Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. Okay? Now, why do some Christians so strongly defend Israel and not Palestine? A variety of reasons, because it's easy to read the Old Testament and go, well, the Jews seem like the chosen people, and so let's bat for them, even though I would argue they miss some of the New Testament interpretation of what that currently means. And sometimes it has nothing to do with religious reasons. It is purely political. And is there some elevation of Jewish people, even though they haven't accepted Christ? Let me tell you how Paul puts it. There is no favoritism. The gospel is for all, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Doesn't that sound like favoritism? There's no favoritism, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but there's no favoritism. Have fun with that. <laughs> Suppose someone goes through life consciously doing wrong, hurting other people with the belief that God will forgive them in the end. A person like that is horribly, horribly deceived. They are deluded. They are lying to themselves. They are setting themselves up for the biggest cosmic awakening. And I don't mean that as a good thing. Will God forgive someone that lives like that and thinks like that? God's grace is extended 
to everyone. But everyone is free to reject it and walk away. For some people, that is primarily a cognitive activity. And for many other people, it's revealed that the cognitive beliefs they claim to have have never actually translated. Because what God's Spirit does when he comes to you ultimately is he transforms you. How do you know you're saved? If you're transformed. Period. That's why Jesus will talk about things like being born from above or born again or new birth or new creation. And things like faith and belief but also the character and conduct of your works become signs for that. Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit. And the person who claims to believe in God, but there is not one iota of difference, of change in their life, and even a scoffing disregard for the way of God, makes me question, what do they believe to begin with? Kind of a sobering warning for us all there, isn't it, on that one? What if you believe that Jesus is our Savior, but you don't need... Uh, to know or believe that to be saved, he did it all regardless of what you believe. I put this up here because I'm not quite sure where you're going. I think I do, but I don't want you to give me that video clip afterwards. So text in again for clarity if you're out there. Did Judas go to heaven since he had remorse for what he did? You know, you know the story with Judas? Betrays Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. Afterwards, he's filled with, with regret he tries to give the money back. They, done is done, man. And he goes and hangs himself. The Bible doesn't say where Judas is at. So I think we have to be cautious about making matter-of-fact determinations on such a thing. And could a person like Judas be saved? Absolutely. And you know why? Because Peter betrayed too. In fact, the gospel set up Judas and Peter almost as a foil. Two disciples both betray. Both feel regret. One hangs himself in despair. The other, there seems to be every indication, is saved. Because remorse is not the same as repentance. You can feel bad about something and not repent. Because fundamental, what's kind of in the kernel of repentance is not feeling bad about something, but changing from what you've done and saying, God, I throw myself on your mercy. And whether Judas ever threw himself on God's mercy is an unanswered question in the scripture, so we just can't say. But I know we can't say that just because he had regret, he saved. Is there an unforgivable sin? Yes. <laughs> Can you still, you want to know, some of you may be wrestling with this deep, yes and no. Let me boil it down. The scriptures will talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as the unforgivable sin. What does that mean? Shorthand, it's this. Rejection of God, disbelief. Because the Holy Spirit is fundamentally the one who brings you to faith, to scoff the Holy Spirit, to reject the Holy Spirit, to take God's working in your life and to harden yourself against it is ultimately to sever yourself against God's grace in your life. And we all know what happens when our arteries get hard. Eventually, the attack comes. There is no action I think you can do that will cast you out of God's presence forever. Jesus' death and resurrection trumps any sin. But God does allow people to reject him, to harden themselves from his transformation, from his grace, 
And that leaves you in a place of unforgiveness on the last day. Great one. And if you are struggling with this, I get it. Come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help you on the journey. I've been there myself on this one. Can you still go to heaven? Um, I think it's meant to say, even though you're not baptized, something to that effect. Uh, yeah, totally. Baptism is not what saves you. Jesus' death and resurrection is what saves you. All right? If God still loves those in hell, will there ever be a chance for redemption for them? It's a really interesting philosophical question. Short answer is maybe. Because here's the practical answer. The practical answer that the scriptures seem to give is that no. Whether there is a chance for them or not, that chance will not be seized upon. I encourage you, read Revelation 16. It's this amazing picture about God coming at his people in every single conceivable way, trying to get them to repent, even using pain and agony and loss. And it says that they would rather gnaw their tongues in agony and gnash their teeth at God than repent. Because some people are so hardened, so hateful, so calloused against God that even if God gives them a chance for an eternity, that chance will never be grabbed upon. So whether it's possible is an interesting debate within the church, but whether it actually happens seems to be clear. These two were similar, so I put them back to back. Are homosexual relationships unforgivable if you continue to participate in them? And if someone continues to live a homosexual lifestyle, will they go to hell when they die? You know, what I'd like you to do is take the word homosexual out of there and replace any other sin that you can think of, okay? Are people who lie unforgivable if they continue to lie up until the day they die? Are people who are greedy, unforgiven, even if they continue to be greedy up to the day they die? Are people who are selfish, unforgiven? You see what I mean? Do you see how the answer to this is far bigger than just a sexuality question? Now, the Bible is clear. Homosexual practice is considered a distortion of God's plan and therefore a sin. That's what all sin is. No better or worse, all sin is condemnable and brings us short of the glory of God. But how does that work with participation? The only way I can do this is, is to illustrate it. And, and I need to volunteer for this, all right? All at once. Rock on. Ben, Ben. This is my son, Ben. Give it up for him. Birthday tomorrow. Big 11. I didn't know if you guys realized this, but Ben, in fact, is God. Okay? Ben is God. I want you to imagine that Ben is God, and I am, this is going to be a tough one for you, a sinful human being. Okay? This is what sin does. It puts you in this position towards God. Okay? To repent means to turn. So to repent from your sin is to do this towards God. Okay? Do you see that? What sin does is it distances you from God. So, Every time I continue to sin, I continue to walk this way. Now, at any point, I can repent, right? And God's there, and boom, you know, bam, we're back in. 
But what continued sin of any variety does is continue to distance us more and more from God. Now, there will come a point when I keep walking that I will go over the curvature of the earth and I will no longer see him. Is that correct? How long that walk is for any given human being is not revealed. And this is the warning of sin. Because what continued sin does is put more and more distance between you and God, and there will come a point where continued sin will automatically drop you off the horizon. Now, does that mean God can't come back to you again? No, 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 don't go there. But you can at some point fall away, and the danger or the warning is you don't know where that point is, so repent. Don't play the margins. Don't risk the edge. Repent because there are consequences at stake. And whether you are greedy or a liar or self-centered or arrogant or homosexual or heterosexual, repent. Don't play the edge. Give it up for Ben. Thanks, man. Next question. Is swearing a big sin that you can go to hell? Um, depends what word you use. All right. Uh, you know, it's both better than you think and worse than you think. Um, you're not going to open up to like Ephesians chapter 3 and see a list of like 19 words that thou shalt not say. All right? But what the scriptures will talk about is things like this. Don't gossip. Don't sin in your anger. Put the best construction on things. Speak love, not hate towards people. Don't let coarse joking or unwholesome talk that could be cruder than imaginable but contains no four-letter words come out of your mouth. You know, what happens through the mouth is an expression of what's in the heart. And that's the real issue. I have known people with the dirtiest mouths that pride themselves on not swearing. And I have known some of the most holy people that revel in four-letter words like they're making a painting. It, you know, it's just... <laughs> Watch the effect of your words. No, it's not just four-letter ones that matter to God. And if your language is revealing that something is going on in here, repent before you go over the horizon. Because what you say does affect you and other people. What about LGBT? Did God make a mistake? No. No, God, God did not make a mistake. Um, nor did he make a mistake because there's, there's people today that steal. Nor did he make a mistake because Adam and Eve sinned. Beware of the line of thinking that says fatalistically things are the way they are because God made them that way. All right? We live in a world filled with choices. Some are our own. We live in a world where there's forces that are at work, and we find ourselves in certain ways. All of us are corrupt. All of us bear temptation. All of us face things within the soul of who we are that are not completely the way God intended things to be. Don't blame God. It's not God's fault, and God loves you anyway. LGBT or not, sinner or not, you know, it, it, it just, if you're sitting there and you're identifying with this going, what's wrong with me? Well, sin. Sin is wrong with you. 
And God loves you. And God died for you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And he wants to call you to be by his side. And he knows it's going to be tough. And he knows it's going to be hard. And he gets it probably better than you do. He knows you. And he knows what you're facing. And he invites you to trust him. He invites you to just trust him and say, let me walk with you through this. And if a church in this world is worth itself, they're saying the exact same thing. You're here and you're struggling with this. You got a place here where we'll love you and we'll talk with you and hopefully be able to work with you through the things that you're struggling with. All right? I'm going to leave that one there. When looking for guidance from God on an important decision, how do you know if the guidance you're getting is from God or some other, I just love that last line, less desirable place? You don't always. <clears throat> you don't. And this is why fundamentally you just can't carte blanche trust the voices in your head. Okay? Straight up. We all feel moved to do some of the stupidest things dishonoring of God things in this world. But it feels so right. I feel like God is telling, no, he's not. It's your bean burrito from last night at 3 a.m. that's talking to you. All right? So this is why John will write to the early church, test the spirits. Test the spirits. If you're feeling a strong pull towards something, if you're feeling that God is telling you something, don't just take your gut reaction word for it. Test it against the scriptures. Test it, test it against the wisdom of the church. Test it against the wisdom of other believers that are out there. Test it against your conscience. Test it against all these things. And especially if it's something big, don't just trust the gut. All right? Told you, there's like 52 of these. You guys like rocked it. If heaven is good through God, does that make death a good thing as well? If so, should we celebrate instead of mourn? Very fascinating. The scriptures will talk about death in two ways. The predominant way is to talk about death as the enemy. Death is something contrary to God's plan. Death is something as even distancing people from what God is calling them to do and what it's supposed about. God did not intend death to ever be a reality. Death is the result of sin. And fundamentally, the Christian hope is that death is one day going to be swallowed up forever and that there will be a new heaven and new earth where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But death is still a reality that even believers face. Jesus is raised, but we still die, waiting for our resurrection to come. And Paul actually wrestled with this at one point. He was in prison, wanting to die. Because sometimes you suffer so bad and you see so little hope that you want to die. Paul got that. And here's what he said. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I, I, I don't know what to do. Because if I go on living, I can go on doing the work that God has in store for me. But if I die, I get to go and be with him. And this is the key line, which is better by far. And how cool is that, that even the biggest enemy against God, that God can come in the midst to and say it's even better by far than what you think, you know what I'm saying? So, can death be a good thing? 
Ontologically, maybe not, but practically it could be the better of two choices. If so, should we celebrate instead of mourn? Can I, can I suggest a third way? If that person you loved has died, don't make that an either-or. Celebrate and mourn. If God is all-knowing, it seems a little off that a young girl can get pregnant at a relatively young age, yet research shows that the human brain is fully, it, uh, the human brain is fully developed until age 25. Um, you following the, the train of thought on this one? Basically saying, how can a, how can a 12-year-old get pregnant if the human brain isn't fully developed until age 25, and why would God allow something like that to be? That's how I'm reading the text. Well, because no sane human being with a fully developed brain would ever dream of having kids. All right? I mean, come on. I never cease to... It's okay, Riley. Honey, it's okay. I love you. It, it, it. <clears throat> I never cease to be amazed at how much trust God puts in our hands and how much risk is on the line. Jesus goes to heaven. He has 12 high school kids sitting around his table called disciples, and he goes, change the world. Really? Because I'm telling you, I would have a little bit better action plan if I were God on that one, all right? That's how God rolls. God is a risk taker, and he gives incredible opportunity for joy and goodness, and also for destruction and ruin in our hands. And I don't care how fully or underdeveloped your brain might be, there ain't a person here who's off the hook. There ain't a person here who isn't culpable. There ain't a person here who can go, God, my brain wasn't fully developed, and my, my girlfriend, she was just really hot. No, 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 you're not getting off on that one, all right? You're not getting a pass, because you know right and wrong and you don't need a fully developed brain to grasp it. All right. Were the Gospels written as a timeline of Jesus' life or to make believers out of certain churches? More the latter than the former. The Gospels are certainly a biography of Jesus' life. But the Gospels don't seem rigidly concerned with getting everything in perfect sequential order. This is why when you read the Gospels, they will often put the events of Jesus' life in different order in order to make literary, thematic, and theological points. Because making believers out of Jesus is fundamentally what the Gospels are most interested in. Here's the guy. Here's how it resonates with the deep streams of theology. Here's the events that happen in his life. Let me weave the story. Make sense? How many disciples died for Jesus? I don't know of any disciples that died for Jesus, but I know a lot of disciples Jesus died for. Jesus, John 7, says, who believe? Rock on, brother. All right, rock on. Do people still speak in tongues? Yes. Uh, why would that happen in the church where all speak the same language? Why do you assume everyone speaks the same language? And why do you assume that God only wants it to be a monolithic language-speaking church? Right? Um, is it real? Sometimes. I've had Pentecostal friends who said, yeah, I made it up sometimes. We all do. You ever raise your hands when you're not really into it in worship or close your eyes and you're not really praying? Guess what? You can do tongues that way too. But does that mean the real thing never exists? No, it doesn't. God can anoint you to speak in another language. In the New Testament, predominantly it's done to bring the gospel to someone of a different people group. And why does it always have to happen immediately and miraculously? Why can't God give the gift of language as a missionary works among a people group? Why do we always make it so narrow? 
But does that mean God can't do the supernatural with it? Of course not, and he's done. And sometimes God gives what he calls this strange, angelic prayer language too, and the people who have experienced it say, awesome. And sometimes that's enough, right? How come some churches focus very strongly on supernatural experiences with God? I think it's supposed to be healing and tongues, while others completely ignore that aspect. There is no such thing as one church that can be all things to all people. Every church fundamentally is going to highlight and emphasize certain aspects, and that's the beauty of a diverse church in the world today, is that each of us can pour our heart into aspects that might otherwise get watered down. But some ignore it because they just don't know how to deal with it. Some ignore it because they're afraid of it. Some ignore it because they've been burned by it and it's not worth the pain anymore. Some ignore it because there's power plays at work and how can a lonely child in our Sunday school be more spiritually anointed than me as the pastor and probably about 12 other reasons as well. What do you make of near-death experiences seeing heavenly things? It's fascinating that for most of time and in most of the world, visions were considered normal reality. It's our 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st century enlightenment that has so elevated rational thought above all other things, and that is not the norm of the Bible or history. How did, uh, how did Mary know what was going on when she found herself pregnant? How did Daniel know what was going on when he found himself in Babylon? The scriptures seem replete with visions all the time. We've had a missionary here who used to be a Hezbollah sniper, and he came to Christ because he said Christ appeared to him in a vision. And now he's on a hit list because a former militant Muslim terrorist is a Christian pastor. God appears. God appears. Does that mean every experience is true? No. So test it. When do you think Jesus will come back to earth? Oh, I hope soon. And a follow-up question to one asked earlier last week. What do you think God views as a good reason to get divorced? For time's sake, I'll just cut it. Um, I'll kind of be matter-of-fact. What I say now has to be situated in a broader context, but is your life in danger or your kids? Is your safety in danger or your kids? I think that's one really good reason. Does your staying in the marriage enable that person to continue a life of destruction? Are you enabling them in their sin? Be that adultery, be that addiction, be that behaviors where they treat you any way they want and there's no repercussion. Divorce might be the best thing you can do, not only for yourself, but for that person in times like that. There's others I can get into as well, and I'm just going to say this. If you texted it, I'm just going to take a stab that this is coming from a deeper place. Let's talk. Don't make a rash decision on a 30-second answer given here today. Let's talk and see what's going on and see where God maybe wants to take this. And a couple more. Is it possible to merge theory of evolution and, and creationism, creationism, and believe that Adam and Eve were ape-like? Is it possible? Yeah, all kinds of things are possible. Um, but is it likely 
that the two merge the way you want? That is a different question. For those whom the shoe fits, how can we as Christians reconcile our beliefs in science with Christianity? Actually, very easily. Um, the two were never meant to be antagonism, antagonistic. In fact, in the Middle Ages, theology was called the queen of the sciences. Science was always seen as an outflow of Christian philosophy and thinking that there is a God who's created a world, who's created it stable, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and therefore how he works in this world is not capricious about which God won the, the, the arguing match that day, but that God is operating on a system. The two are very harmonious in a philosophical way. Does that mean every Christian idea and every theory of science is going to be harmonious? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. And both need to be tested to ensure that proper interpretation is being done in each way. And does following Christianity mean not believing aliens exist? If not, how come? You know, the Bible talks a lot about aliens. It actually says we're supposed to love aliens. Um, it says we're supposed to have special concern for the aliens and the fatherless and the widow and the orphans. Um, so it's all over the place. Um, oh, they, all over the place. Why aren't dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Not around that time? Just ignore them? I'll leave this one on this. Read Job 40 and 41. Ask me again next week. Who wrote Genesis? I don't know. I don't. What do you do when you constantly lean away from God and are unsure of your faith? What do you do when you constantly lean away from God and are unsure of your faith? This is what the Bible asks you to do. Repent. You lean away 433 times a day, turn back 433 times a day. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No, 70 times seven, Jesus says. How many times can I fall away from my faith or lean away from God? Seven times? 70 times seven is what I think Jesus would say. You know, you might be struggling. You might be in a bad place, and it might not just be a couple of weeks. It might be some years where you constantly feel in this place of uncertainty, of leaning away for God. God continually invites you. Come to me in your uncertainty. Come to me in your doubt. Come to me in your struggle. Come to me in all of this. Seek from me. Learn from me. Take, your yoke, take my yoke upon you. It's easy. And I'm gentle in heart. And guys, don't do it alone. That's what church is about, because this stuff, it is messy. It is hard. We fall down a billion times today, which is why God gave us a church to help each other, other people struggling with the same things and those who have gone before you, who have learned how to help you navigate the path. Lean into us. 52 questions that went unanswered last week. And you can verify for this text, I don't think I'm at the end. I saw some of you texting in today. Guess what's coming next week? I'm gonna wrap these up. We're gonna hit unanswered texts next week. Keep this going. Next week is our final week of questions you never thought you can ask. Let me just close in saying this. The questions you're asking, guys, 
They're phenomenal. They are phenomenal and they reveal people who are really wrestling in a serious way with things about faith. Don't stop asking. So band, I'm going to invite you forward. Guys, I'm going to invite you to rise. And uh, let's just take a moment before we come and close out in worship today, just situate our hearts. And uh, let's pray. It's, uh, it's humbling, God, for me to be here with so many people that are asking just some of the most deep and profound and, and, uh, and important questions. Some that I think God are tapping deep into souls and some that are just thorns of the mind that can't be gotten around and others that seem simple on the surface but, but are gateways or springboards to deeper issues. May we never stop seeking, God. I pray that you, you, you churn in, in the people's hearts here with a hunger and a thirst for for knowledge and truth and your way and your righteousness, for your will, for greater revelation, for greater clarity, for greater understanding. And I pray, God, that you grant us humility. To lower ourselves below you in what you have to say, to, to humble ourselves, God, when we can't find the answer. We don't know what it has to say. Lord, you are infinite, big, wise, and beyond our ultimate understanding. But thank you for a glimpse. And we pray it increases. And that knowledge won't just puff us up, but God, it will translate to love, to faith, to devotion. For those here who are struggling in doubt, in fear, who feel like they're constantly leaning away, that God, they would experience the grip of your spirit, that they would feel it tight. But even when they don't, that they would be willing to risk and trust that your grip on them is all the same. You are the God who is with us, a God who does not abandon us, but searches and seeks until we're found. And a God who does not easily let go. All as we pray.